This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Welcome to this wrap-up edition of Studiosity's Reimagining the Future of Higher Education for 2022. I'm Jack Goodman. I'm here with my co-host, Judith Sachs. Welcome, Judith. Hi, Jack. Good to be talking to you this morning rather than us talking to other people. It is. It's a lot of fun, and um, it's hard to believe we've been through, I think, 25 episodes uh, this year. And as we're coming in right at the tail end of 2022, and we're gearing up for um, end of year celebrations, we thought now would be a good time to have a conversation for us to reflect a little bit on some of those conversations we've both been having, and also to maybe share some of our own thoughts uh, about uh, the sector. So I thought one of the ways we might start off is by um, each of us bringing an object to start our conversation. So, so um, why don't you start us off? What, what have you brought to share today? Jack, I've brought a, uh, a paperweight. And it's a paperweight that was given to me by a student when I uh, completed my first year at University of Sydney. And it, she was my first honour student uh, at University of Sydney. And uh, that was 1996. And the paperweight has been on my various desks ever since then as a reminder both of my student and her success, but also of, um, of the aesthetic appeal of just a simple object. But, but let me talk about the importance of uh, it in terms of my student. The student, um, I met her parents at her graduation, and sadly, I went to both of her parents' funerals. And she and I have had a long-standing friendship uh, since 1990, the end of 1996. She is my PhD student. Uh, her PhD has taken longer than anticipated because of various life exigencies. But I think that what it speaks to me about is the importance of students in our lives, how we can learn from them, and how they act as mirrors, both for our own accountability as teachers, but they also act as uh, reflective points about the value of good teaching, the impact that we have te as, as teachers have on, on them and their lives. So I guess the, the, the paperweight, it has both practical and pragmatic sim symbolism, but it also has, uh, represents a longstanding friendship and mentoring. Well, that is that is beautiful, Judith. And I would just um, share it with our listeners who aren't watching this that it's a um, it's a beautiful sort of oval shaped um, glass paperweight, and inside it looks like some sort of um, tropical reef with a starfish and various other shells inside. So it is quite beautiful, quite appealing to hold. Has a lovely weight to it, and is just a you know carries obviously all of that meaning inside of it as well. So, Jack, what did you bring in? Yeah, well, nothing nearly so beautiful. This is a kind of tattered copy of a book that I, with two colleagues who were students with me when we were undergraduates a long time ago um, in the 1980s, a book that we wrote of um, interviews with alumni. It's called In the Nation Service. It was uh, 26 Princetonians reflecting on their university then and now. And uh, yeah, so I was an undergraduate at Princeton University in the mid-1980s. 
and was an editor of the newspaper, which was an interesting job that was a student run and, and student owned independent newspaper. It was a daily. Um, we put out five papers a week and, um, and it was the sole source of news. And we decided one summer that we wanted to write a book. And we went to our university administrators and um, being entrepreneurs that we were, we said, well, why don't you just uh, give us some money and we'll write this great book and we won't really tell you what it's going to be about, but, uh, but you're going to love it. And, um, and, and please, you just need enough money to survive and eat over the summer and we'll, uh, we'll give you a book in the fall. And they said, well, that sounds nice, but uh, we're going to appoint an editor and tell you how to do it. And we said, well, we're not so interested in you telling us how to do it. So this turned into a, a project whereby we went and identified uh, 26. I think we interviewed probably more like 35 people. We traveled around the country throughout the uh, summer. Um, we convinced the university to give us some free accommodation, but that was all. And then um, we needed to figure out a way to pay to publish the darn thing. And, uh, and we found a new dean of admission who was quite interested in the idea of students writing a book. And he agreed to prepay to purchase 2,000 copies to give to every new student that would be admitted the next year. And, uh, and with that money in hand, we could afford to pay the printer. And we managed to sell enough other copies and some advertisements in the back that um, paid for the book. And the reason that was probably most important in my life was partly getting to meet a lot of incredible people, um, but um, and producing something like this and really doing something on our own with no adult supervision at the time. But it also had a transformative impact on me because it, it, it partly made me realize I wanted to probably work for myself. It also, may, um, I think, was probably one of the reasons I ended up getting a scholarship to study overseas. And that was how I met my now wife, we were both studying in the UK, and that's how I ended up in Australia, and that's why we're having this podcast today. So the book is a um, really a bridge between where I was growing up in on the East Coast of the US in the 1980s and how I got to the last 20 plus years of my life in Australia. So Jack, in terms of that book, it represents both your lateral thinking, your being an entrepreneur, but also pushing the boundaries about what institutions will will um, accept. Do you want to elaborate on that, those sort of those points? Because that's what I got out of the, your story. Yeah, pushing the boundaries. It's a really good point. And that is sort of who I am or have become. And the book was definitely part of that. And I came very close to going through that academic career and becoming uh, you know, a PhD student like your PhD student that you talked about and following that academic pathway. In fact, I got right up to the line. I even accepted a PhD program um, for about 24 hours before I changed my mind in about 1994 or five and, um, and decided actually I am more of a person who wants to build new things and try new things and continuing to work in large organizations that are um, more about persistence than about change was not in line with my personality type. And so um, it's funny that I have, you know, ended up building this organization that is about helping institutions like that try and navigate change. But I, I find that a very appealing place to be. We can, um, we, can, we can help bring them along on a journey of change, which is never comfortable, but is essential. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that book helped prepare me for a lot of what followed, which was 
let's just say a few decades of wandering around in the wilderness, but eventually finding my, myself somewhere. We've got an interesting foundation here, Judith, to talk a little bit about what some of the themes we might want to draw out of the 25 or so conversations um, that we've had this year. Um, you had the majority of them. What, what really stood out for you in, in some of those fantastic interviews you, you, you did with um, so many uh, vice chancellors, both current and retired? Look, there are a number of things that came out, but first and foremost, the generosity of the vice chancellors giving up their precious time to talk to me and the candor in which they spoke. And I learned a lot about our vice chancellors that, that I'd actually worked with because many of them, we were all deputy vice chancellors together. But then um, I think that was part of the, the mana that I had in, in being able to open some doors. But I think hearing their personal stories of, for many of them, it wasn't one of privilege. It was being a first in family student. Uh, for, for some of them, it was, it was about not understanding the cultural capital and the sort of educational capital required in universities, but being smart and then navigating that. But I think one of the ones, the points that I really liked was when Deborah Terry talked about the joy of discovery. Mm. And that joy of discovery connected with me because it's one of the things that uh, links with curiosity. And I think curiosity is fundamental to, to uh, effective education, whether it's in university or whether it's in schools. But I also think that what's happening in universities, particularly around um, the, uh, the massification of education, the vocational of education, that curiosity is actually diminished. So I, I, I guess uh, the generosity of, of, of our vice chancellors, that life wasn't always easy for them. But then another final point is that there were some people in their lives that stepped in and mentored them and helped them navigate the intricacies of university life, um, which I think uh, helped them to be successful. In terms of yours, Jack, what what extra things did you um, ascertain from your the people you interviewed? Yeah, I I think you hit you, you hit the nail on the head there with that that sort of tension between the curiosity, which is really what we would like students to come away with. If you're a curious person, you're going to be a learner in all parts of your life. Um, but dealing with that aspiration in a mass, an increasingly massified higher education system. Yeah. Um, how do you do it? And that's what, what I think we, we both heard a lot of anxiety amongst the people we we're talking to. Um, the, the system that the people we've been interviewing participated in as students, undergraduates, postgraduates, PhD students, that uh, was all from the late 70s through the mid 90s. It's a long time ago now. Almost everyone has graduated at least 25, if not 30 or 40 or more years ago. And the system has changed enormously. And there's a lot of head scratching going on about how we can perhaps try and in today's world and in this environment with 1.5 million students in Australia, give them some of, you know, a modern version of some of that, you know, joy-filled discovery, curiosity, you know, just learning for learning's sake, as opposed to the much more transactional kind of experience it seems many, many people have had. So, yeah. And when we were talking beforehand, we, we both sort of thought, 
there was a lot of nostalgia how different the experience of students were now and to their own experience. And in particular, the sort of the struggle to survive. And that struggle to survive is as much financial as it is about doing exams and the pressure of, of getting everything done, especially given that many of our students aren't school leaders. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, a huge point and it came up again and again. Um, the economic imperatives that are just hugely, hugely pressurizing students in, in terms of how they make ends meet, how they um, you know, deal with all of the expenses that they have and the burden of um, you know, the, the trade-off between time spent studying and time spent working. And many of them aren't just you know, full-time employees or workers, but also have families. So it's a much, much more complicated environment. And, um, and, and they're in institutions that have on average 40 plus thousand students, some of them as many as 70 or 80,000 or more. And having to navigate these really big places, not always with a huge amount of support. The, the other point that was um, interesting for me is the complexity of the job as a vice chancellor. And for all of them, despite the complexity, they all spoke about the importance of students, how they then navigated that because of the size of their organization and the resources they had, I think is one of the great dilemmas and complexities of, of higher education. But you know that, that enhancing student experience and being mindful of supporting students, they all believed it. But some universities did it better than others. And the quilt data in particular makes it really clear that group of eight, um, the student experience is not the same as a, say, a, a small regional university like um, Sunshine Coast. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful point. And, and um, the, the, the quilt data is particularly powerful. Um, when you look at it right now, two years, two years of uh, post-pandemic impact quilt data, um, but there does seem to be almost an, an inverse correlation between research rankings and quilt rankings. And, and I think that speaks to the fact that no matter what university we're talking about, there is a fixed amount of budget that can be spent on things, on people, on buildings, on research, and on students and teaching and learning. So you've got those four pots, and there's probably some more too, technology and various other things, but there's a fixed amount that can be spent. And if you wanna optimize for, let's say, rankings globally, that tends to be driven by research and infrastructure and things like that, and reputation. and um, and and when you do that, which is what our top ranked universities do, there is by necessity less left over, less bandwidth as well as less capital left over for investing in the teaching and learning. And so um, there's a there's a real tension there. The other thing that you notice in the, the quilt data, and this isn't just post pandemic, this was pre pandemic as well, just to be clear. The other thing you notice is that some of the highest ranked universities tend to be some of the smaller ones and ones that are a little more specialized, places like Bond and, 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 and Notre Dame or Avondale are um, places where it seems students are much more likely to be happy than at some of the biggest ones. International students came up and the reliance of uh, universities on international students. Of course, we saw with the pandemic and students not being able to um, come back on campus and 
still that sort of liminal state, some are, are coming back on campus, some aren't. What are, what are your sort of uh, reflections and insights from the people that you talk to about the dependence on, on international students? Yeah, well, it's not even so much um, you know, my perspective, but I, what, what we hear and some of it we've heard on our podcast, but we also are talking to people all the time and at conferences and, uh, and reading, and, and I'm sure you're hearing and reading a lot of the same things I am, Judith, but certainly one of the things I keep hearing is, um, you know, the, the, the international student market is, you know, incredibly competitive uh it's changing enormously the the impact of the pandemic and in particular um our single largest source of students in china um is dramatically changing the 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 scope and scale and nature of international students i think that there's another factor there that we the pandemic revealed part of it was actually there was an initial fear that we were going to lose all these international students they would all just um, you know, evaporate, partly because we had a prime minister who suggested they should go away. Um, that was a disastrous um, view, which thankfully has been um, well and truly walked back. But, um, but lots of these international students, in fact, most of them chose to stay enrolled and study online. And now they are continuing to study online. So a lot of them haven't come back, but they seem to be perfectly happy to be online. And I think that's a really interesting question about what does it mean to be an international student in 2023 and going forward? Um, you can definitely study anywhere in the world if you don't actually have to um, you know, immigrate. That's a, that's a kind of a remarkable development. We kind of all intellectually knew it could happen, but now it looks like it is happening. One of the lost opportunities with international students for me, and particularly now that I'm an outsider, but have been an insider, is we didn't use them as a resource to build up cultural competencies, cultural understandings about diversity and about living in, in a complex global world. And I, I don't quite know why that, that opportunity didn't take place, except perhaps that government policy didn't see it as, a, as, as, as at the forefront. And so government policy was, finance, was, was financial rather than cultural and social and educational. Yeah, well, we, you know, what I think we've learned, and in some ways, um, if people are familiar with the uh, the Freakonomics guys and the Freakonomics podcast, what we've learned really here is that incentives matter. And, you know, 30 years ago, plus the government set up some, some a framework, the Dawkins Review, set up some incentives, encouraged the universities to do these things for economic, largely economic reasons, and universities have gone and done an incredible job about it, but they didn't do they didn't absorb international students or pursue that market for the, you know, for the cultural competency reasons that you said, which is why there is, um, you know, and this is something I've, we've heard, you know, in the UK happening in the UK as well as here, but um, uh, students who come from overseas from non-English speaking backgrounds often find that their English skills diminish when they're in Australia, not as opposed to improving. And that's because they simply are around many other international students from the same speak the same language and they don't spend as much time engaging with and becoming friends with or making connections with local students and that actually is right in the middle of the quilt data you can see that right in there in terms of learner engagement international students rate their student experiences substantially lower than domestic students and that is something i think we should all be scratching our heads about and worrying because um we are just enormously reliant on those students and if they aren't happy we need to figure out what to change. 
I remember when I was provost at Macquarie, hearing from some business students that um, there were some Chinese students that actually took it as a, a badge of honor uh, to have not had to write anything in English during their, during their course. <laughs> that they spoke in Chinese and in fact their their language skills um, diminished because they weren't speaking English. And so I think that that was that was something that we knew, but I'm sure that we didn't know what what to do and the best way to manage it. But I think that we're now much more um, aware of the need to to test students' language skills. Uh, particularly around the, the stuff around integrity, around contract cheating, which you know is another one of the issues that came up. So, Jack, yeah, you, you've got some some grand uh, ideas, <laughs> and not not you, you've got some really substantial ideas about how to manage contract cheating. Yeah, well, I think we we we, we should. There's a lot of evidence that's been developed and a lot of research, wonderful research has been done, so much of it by um, our, you know, our, our mutual friend, the late Tracy Bretag, and, uh, and what she and her colleagues unpacked um, right through the 2010s in terms of their research. And, um, and I would love for us to go back and revisit some of those findings, I think we would probably all do well to remember, you know, some of the factors that she talked about realizing were really the main drivers of contract cheating. Um, one of which is being a uh, student from a non-English speaking background. So uh, that is a factor, but it's only a factor when students also feel like there isn't a lot of care or regard by the institution um, that they are attending. So, um, you know, students who feel cheated cheat, and those who are from a non-English speaking background are more likely to um, engage in, in, in that sort of activity, not because they set out to do that, but because they feel like they have no other choice. And um, if we don't, you know, the real the real issue is if we don't support students well, they will engage in contract cheating. And we have seen, in fact, others such as Guy Curtis have suggested that contract cheating levels are much, much higher than are being reported um, for lots of reasons. And 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 we are and, the, and and Texas is trying to take a, you know, an active role in this by banning cheating sites. But what I would really encourage, and if Tracy were here, I'm sure she would be saying, and we would be interviewing her right now, she would be saying, if you really want to deal with this, especially in 2023, with the level of technology and the level of, of, of you know, the alternatives for people to go to the dark side, you need to invest a lot more in the teaching and learning experience, because that will be, that will address the key factors that um, need to be mitigated. Uh, if you treat this as an enforcement issue, if you treat this just as a, we need to shut down websites and punish students who cheat, um, you are only going to be dealing with symptoms, not with causes. And, uh, and I think that's a, you know, you know, that's a, a segue into this whole question around what would we like the sector to be looking like or thinking about as we head into 23 and this new, this big review that's coming along, um, I, I, I don't know about you, Judith, but I would love to see some, a little bit of rebalancing um, in favor of the teaching and learning and student experience. 
you and I are on the same page, and not surprisingly, I, I think that what I would like to see is, well, it, it starts with real clarity around the purpose of higher education and recognising that every university does not need to look the same, that we have greater strength in diversity and have diversity of programs, diversity of approaches, diversity of sizes. And we have a diversity of student experiences. So, you know, we have some that focus on uh, programs uh, that, that, are, that are the traditional programs, some that are the programs around um, a liberal arts sort of program, but also that the student experience is about immersive learning. And in fact, it's about adding value to the student rather than just ticking the boxes to say, I've, I've met this piece of assessment. So I guess for me, here's an opportunity for us to have a national debate about what are universities for? What do we want them to do? But more importantly, what's possible for them to do? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I, and I think the sector is crying out for some external um, imperative to make that kind of investment. Um, what we've seen over the last 30 years is that when you set set rules and ground rules for how, how institutions that are public institutions should, um, should comport themselves, they optimize for those rules. And the, those rules so far historically have been about grow your enrollments, international enrollments especially, and pour as much of the, that capital into research and rankings and repeat, 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 repeat. And we've gone from a sector with 400,000 students in 1989 to 1.6 million today. And, and I think you're exactly right. Uh, the universities that, are, that have evolved to be somewhat niche players are clearly doing things that are working well for their students. And those that have grown, as you know, Glenn Davis has said to be, you know, one university repeated 30 or 35 or 40 times are all really quite similar. Um, and we do need more variety and we need to incentivize and or reward them for doing things uh, differently. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to just a, one of the more recent episodes that our colleague Sir Eric Thomas hosted, um, uh, interviewing uh, and talking about uh, university rankings. And he said, uh, people tend to forget that the most important output of a university are the people who graduate by a long way. So Sir Eric was a, a doctor and a, a former vice chancellor at the University of Bristol, a great Russell Group re uh, intensive research university. But his point was really well taken, which is that the graduates of our universities who every year, year in and year out, we are putting these graduates into the world and they are um, you know, starting and building and living their careers and having the, you know, the impact that they have, that is the most consistent and powerful impact that every university has. And that doesn't matter if it's the, the world's greatest university or the number 3000 or 5000 university in the world. Um, it's the people who graduate. So those are the, the students um, who become alumni. And, and I think we need to find some ways to rebalance that investment because it has clearly become uh, you know, over-invested on one side of the ledger and under-invested on the other. The thing that surprised me when I went to Macquarie from the University of Sydney, I started to meet a whole lot of graduates of Macquarie University and they all said, 
I had a great time at Macquarie University. I really love being a student there. I'm now doing quite a lot of work at the Australian National University and meeting a lot of people that were graduates of the Australian National University. And they all said, I had a really good time at the Australian National University. I liked learning there. I liked the, the courses that they taught. And then I made me think, well, what's, what's similar between ANU and, um, and Macquarie? And I think it is something to do with the context in which they're learning. The physical surroundings of both the ANU and um, Macquarie University are sort of this parkland. So there's a sense of open spaces, but they also were both created to do things differently. So in 1948, when ANU was established, it was to be Australia's national university. In 1963, when Macquarie was established, it was to be the university for Northwestern Sydney. Well, it's now virtually an inner city university. <laughs> But Macquarie's great value right up until um, fairly recently is it wasn't Sydney and it wasn't UNSW. And that differentiation is, is an important point for both all universities, that all universities don't have to have the same programs. So I think that hopefully the uh, Accord will start to rethink universities having different profiles. And when I first went to Macquarie, you had the profile visits by members of the Department of Education. And it made you really think about, because you were questioned by this panel, about what's your profile? What are the things you want to do? How can you justify what you're wanting to do? Perhaps we've got to go back to that sort of being yeah. defending uh, in a public way your approach to the student experience, the sort of research you do. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it actually comes out in um, Sir Eric's interview discussing university rankings in the UK with, I think it's John O'Leary. Um, they talk a lot about why the emphasis by definition in these rankings tends to be much more research focused. It's much easier to quantify research when you use these, um, you know, ref uh, references and and, and the, the, all the research scoring, which you know infinitely more about than I do, Judith. Uh, harder to quantify the teaching and learning experience, but we do quantify it. And, and I think once you have quantified something and we have a decade's worth of quilt data, like they have more than a decade's worth of national student survey data in the UK, but once you quantified it, and the real question is, do we make organizations accountable for it? And, yeah. and I think if, in this case, with uh, we can really let's hope and let's not just hope, but let's encourage and 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 let's all communicate to the uh, the panel that's doing this review that the new accord needs to have some accountability for quilt data and the student experience because as soon as that's part of what universities are being measured for um, against themselves and against their peers, uh, I think we will see a lot more consistent. Uh, an impactful change. Um, and, and at that point, we'll start to really do what, um, what I think the quilt data has the potential to do, which is to help us highlight areas of excellence and areas for improvement. And you can see that very well when you go to the compared website. But I have to say the compared website must be one of the least known about or used websites amongst educators and students and, and families, people don't really think about it. They don't, they, they, they haven't quite drawn the line and we don't see enough people making use of that and saying, well, am I really attending university A versus university B? Or what I, am I really interested in is 
what is this degree like and what is the quality of the student experience at University A in agriculture or teaching or chemistry as opposed to University B or C or D. And we have the data to do that, um, but we aren't right now asking universities to be accountable each year for the things that they are doing to improve that. I would also hope that um, this review looks at how you recognize and reward good practice. Previously, the Office of Learning and Teaching um, and, and the, the Carrick Institute and, and various forms of that provided funds to support innovation and innovation in teaching, innovation in student learning, but also to recognize and reward outstanding teaching. And I had the privilege to be uh, the chair of the uh, Prime Minister's Award and also the uh, Outstanding Teaching Awards and Citations Awards. And the, the, the sort of the joy and the, um, the ideas that I got from getting best practice from other people was something that was removed with just one pen stroke from a government that didn't really value universities and certainly didn't value teaching. So I hope that you don't have to reinvent it but you also don't, you, you replace it in something that's much more contemporary, but good teaching is fundamental to student success. Innovation, creativity, curiosity is all part of learning. And let's let's put learning in the picture at the center rather than just teaching and delivery. Yeah, uh, look, and Jess Vanderlilly agrees completely, right? She mentioned all of those um, uh, teaching fellows who are no, you know, we don't have any more of them since they closed down the, the Office of Learning and Teaching. So I agree. I think this is so short-sighted. Um, it's not like that was a particularly expensive initiative. And it also just signaled how little regard in Canberra there was, is for the uh, teaching and learning experience. And it's reflected to some extent on the fact that, you know, we have you know, we haven't casualized the researcher role at universities, but we have casualized the teaching role. And, uh, you know, I think we would all probably agree that, you know, you, when you casualize a workforce, you are not valuing it in the same way that when you, um, you know, when, when you have people who you are really rewarding as, as, as excellent teachers. This is something Merlin Crossley talks about a lot. Um, you know, there are batters and bowlers and some all-rounders, but not a lot of all-rounders. And I think that's something we also, you know, it would be really helpful if the system acknowledged that we can have great researchers and great teachers. We don't expect them both to be the same. And, but we really do want people to have some transformative moments when they're students with amazing teachers. And my fear is that there just aren't enough of those happening right now. And if we don't address that, we will, you know, we're, you know, every year that we let this slip further and the quilt data is, is weak and we're really focused on, on our brand and reputation, but not on that, not on the, the really, the most critical output of universities, which is great graduates. Um, we're doing little tiny bits of, of harm to the reputation and brand and, and, and capability of the sector. And we can't really afford that. Um, and you, you, you know, you you only know it's gone after the fact, and then it's almost impossible to bring it back. The the other thing that I would hope that this review looks at is a longer view of the value of universities. Everything was transactional, short term, and it was about employ employability in the economy. 
we've got to have a, a much broader conversation about the value to the nation. And the next generation of researchers are actually the current students that are in schools, that are you know, new, new students to universities. So we've got to make sure that we educate them, that we train them to be world-class researchers, but also confident in and have the skills to be able to communicate the research to multiple audiences. So that will take time, but let's actually see teaching and learning as, at, as the foundation for that long-term nation building. Yeah, I completely agree. And for those, most of who, most of the graduates who will end up not working in research, but will just hopefully, we, well, hopefully not hopefully, but really, um, if we're able to give them the best possible learning experiences, they will just be curious people, and they will be able to solve problems that we don't know about, and that but that will be coming all of our ways. Um, you know, I, I think back to my education, which I think is irrelevant, obviously, to extrapolate from, but I certainly wasn't trained to do any of the things that I've done since I, you know, got my um, undergraduate or postgraduate degrees, but I did have a lot of curiosity and uh, a lot of interest in ideas, and, and I was willing to try new things and to experiment, and I think that's something, if we can, if we can see this new accord, encourage more innovation and um, experimentation at institutions that historically have, um, you know, have been discouraged in some ways from, from doing that out away from the labs, but, you know, we will have a much, much stronger sector for the next generation of students. And students need to be good citizens and they have a responsibility. If they've got the privilege of having an education funded by themselves, but also the state, they've got to give something back. But they also have to understand that they've got a responsibility to their communities and for future generations. I think that's exactly right. And um, in the spirit of giving something back, I, I feel like we've just given something back to our, hopefully to our listeners. Hopefully this has given everyone a little bit of food for thought over the, the holidays, something to uh, digest along with um, probably some large lunches and things like that and, and big holiday meals. Judith, I just want to thank you for 2022 and say what a pleasure it's been doing these interviews with you and how much fun this has been. Uh, and I look forward to another year next year, more interviews and uh, and another and some more opportunities for us to um, to uh, to discuss and opine on 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 these things and maybe not wait till the end of the year next year to do this again. Sounds like a plan. You have a good break too, Jack. Thanks so much, Judith. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next students first symposium an open forum for faculty, staff, and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education. 